Um, I was feeling during the worship the weight of this teaching. This is not a, a light teaching. And so I, I wanted to ask Caroline to pray a, a covering, a blessing, a protection over us. We don't think there's been any retreat that we can remember that's been as opposed as this one, and as difficult to bring together. I mean, there were times yesterday where we were like, should we just cancel it? <laughs> so the enemy does not, I don't think, want, doesn't want this teaching to be brought forth. So if you would stretch out your hands, uh, just to meet over me and Carolyn, if you would pray, I really, really appreciate that. Father, all things are yours. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, you are sovereign. Mm. As Ed said, you are sovereign over all, Lord. Mm. You're sovereign over this property. You are sovereign over your people gathered here. I pray in Jesus' name that we would be covered in the blood of Christ, that there would be a covering over all mouths, all ears, all hearts, that there would be no miscommunication, no misunderstanding. But Lord, that your peace, your perfect peace, would reign, Lord, that there would be grace given to both Thomas and all of us who are receiving your word. And I pray, Lord, for the goal of our community, which is that we would be one as you and the Father are one, Jesus. And that um, you would gather us under your wings for this time. Ask this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Caroline. All right. So we're beginning a new series called Boundaries of Reconciliation. And I put teaching number one here because I didn't really have a title. I think the title of this teaching is True and False Unity. Our community is named Christ the Reconciler. <coughs> this name is, should be a constant reminder to us that Jesus is the one who reconciles. It is his mission of reconciliation that we have been called into. We have several times been approached with the question, with whom are we reconciling? Is there anyone with whom we do not pursue unity? These are very good and important questions. The purpose of this new teaching series called Boundaries of Reconciliation is to provide a first attempt as a community to answer some of those challenging questions. In addition to our own community, we believe it may be helpful to the wider body of Christ in our city, in the nation, and around the world. Since this is the first time we're broaching this topic, I'm really asking you for patience. It's our first attempt to address a very difficult topic. One way I have heard it put is with the phrase, false unity. Have you ever heard this phrase? 
Some followers of Jesus, including leaders and friends whom I greatly respect, are immediately suspicious when the word unity is used, kind of raises their defenses, because they're worried that what's really being talked about is false unity. So this means that Jesus' call to unity becomes, there's an obstacle put in the way. Because instead of hearing the word unity and thinking, this is what Jesus wants, the unity, word unity is heard and there's a, whoa, we've got to be careful about this. Okay? In fact, the core of this morning's message was first developed almost a year ago, last fall, when I was invited to speak at Hope Chapel. And Matt Reinecker, the senior pastor, advised me that if I wanted to talk about unity, I might need to address the question of false unity, otherwise I would lose some of the audience. I ended up addressing it only very briefly in that teaching, with Matt's blessing, just because there wasn't time to give it sufficient attention. But today, there's time. <laughs> One verse I've heard quoted in relation to false unity is Jeremiah. There's, a, there's the same passage is repeated in chapter 6 and chapter 8, almost verbatim. <coughs> and it's where, where, where Jeremiah talks about the prophet saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. <coughs> so here it is. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike. All practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though, as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. That's a strong word from Jeremiah. Do we want Christ the Reconciler to fit this description? No. no. Right? So we can learn from this verse. One of the things we can learn is to superficially cover over conflict by just saying peace, or trying to pretend it doesn't exist, is not true reconciliation. To treat wounds in the body of Christ as if they did not exist would be false unity. And we don't want that. The definition of unity is Jesus' prayer in John 17. What is unity? Unity is the unity of the Trinity. Every other expression of unity comes from the fact that the Godhead is one. The unity of the Trinity is not false unity. Jesus wants the same kind of true unity that exists in the Trinity among his own followers. So we can see that there are two dangers. On the one side is the danger of going too far in the pursuit of unity. But equally important, on the other side is the danger of not going far enough in the pursuit of unity. Our goal in this series is to discover some very practical guidance on how to navigate between those two dangers. On the way, we will touch on some thorny issues, and I'm sure you will have questions. For this teaching, please don't interrupt it, because I feel like it needs to be just given. 
but write down your questions and we'll have time for Q&A and also small groups as preset. This is first, but certainly will not be the last attempt to address this challenge, and we will need grace for each other and for me on the journey. Here is a good place to start. This is a meme that popped up in my Facebook feed a while back. Be more like Christ. He called people devils. He called people children of the devil. He called people Satan. He called some people snakes. He called some people vipers. He called some people liars. Jesus called some people hypocrites. He called some people fools. Be more like Jesus. Oh. Is that a shotgun? What's it say at the top? He's holding a sword. <laughs> the top is Greek, and if it were more clear, I'm sure... Micah, if Micah was in the room, he would know what it said. So but Jesus Christ, Son of Well, the top is, yeah, Jesus Christ, Son of God. I'm not sure what this, yeah, this oh, blurry no, stuff is. Really blurry. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> okay. A little bit of discussion here. I just said we're not going to interrupt the teaching. <laughs> now I'm saying let's hear interruptions of the teaching. What do you think of this? Any just quick reactions? We're not Jesus. <laughs> okay. I have that kind of authority, you know. Okay. Any other thoughts? He also instructed us to do the opposite. Okay. Right. We have to take it in context. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. These are just snippets taken out of context, which we all know can mean nothing. Okay. And he he repeatedly said, "I do only what I see the Father doing." Okay. In, in the moment, moment to moment. Yeah. <clears throat> so we do have a strong emphasis on formation in our community, and formation is to become like Christ. So you can see the temptation to say, this gives us permission to do these things, and we have to ask ourselves, is, it, is this right? So that's going to be some of what we'll talk about today. By the way, this was posted by more than one friend of mine. It kind of made the rounds for a while. Did you see it, Jim? Have you seen this? Yeah. Luke? You saw it? Yeah. No, the, the, the main one. That meme was posted by several people. Jesus is depicted in the icon with a sword. So another scripture I've commonly heard by those concerned about false unity is Jesus saying he didn't come to bring peace, but division. This is often used to justify taking a combative stance on some issue that exists in the body of Christ. Here is the scripture, Luke 12. Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So, Jesus divides. How's that for a great message for a community <laughs> devoted to reconciliation and unity? The question is, what does Jesus divide? When Jesus says he comes to bring not peace but division... Listen carefully. Was he speaking of how he related to his band of disciples? 
Did Jesus wield a sword of division among his disciples? No, that's correct. You never see a place where Jesus is trying to kind of divide his disciples and set one against another. Even with Judas, knowing Judas is a thief in their midst, he never tried to set the disciples against Judas. Jesus challenges his disciples often, but we never see him attempting to divide them. Among his followers, the 12, the 72, he encouraged unity. And in fact, before he prayed for us in John 17, he prays for them, the 12, specifically. So before John 17, 20, 21, there's a set of <coughs> verses in 12, 13, 14, I think, where he prays for them. And his prayer was the same. He prayed for their unity. So the sword Jesus brought does not divide his followers one from another. What does it divide? It divides his followers as a united group from those who don't believe in him, from those who aren't followers. This gives us the first crucial distinction about false unity. We cannot have unity with those who do not follow Jesus. So, if we can't have unity with those who don't follow Jesus, how do we respond to them? We are helped by recalling Caroline's powerful message from last year. Now, in this passage, James and John think that they will be doing Jesus' service, helping the cause, if they call fire down from heaven. They've determined what should happen to these evil people who have openly rejected Jesus. But does their attitude reflect the attitude of Jesus? What we are seeing right now in some members of the body of Christ is James and John's response. We're so willing to call fire down from heaven, to condemn to hell those who are so clearly off base. But Jesus said to James and John, and he says to those of us who would harbor such thoughts or words, you do not know what spirit you are of. And he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the accuser. What was wrong with Jesus' perception? Was he okay with their rejection of him? Of course there is sin. Of course there is wrongdoing. There would be no need for judgment if there were no wrongdoing. Mm. But the key to remember is that there's wrongdoing by all of us. All of us will face judgment at the end of time. The response to sin in the world or in the church is grief, not self-righteousness. Mm -hmm. It should be to take up the cross, to pray for mercy for them. Not to usurp the Lord's place as judge. On the cross, Jesus prayed for mercy. You do not want anyone to go to hell. Anyone. If you do... You don't know what spirit you are of. God wills that none be lost, 
but that all come to salvation. Do not say, do not ever say, they will or should or deserve to burn in hell. No Christian should talk like that. Before you make that call, before you send that email, before you write that post, stop. Pause. The enemy wants us to knee-jerk. He does not want the spirit to have time to work, the time to move in our hearts. He wants to make us feel this sense of moral urgency. The Lord is not in that kind of hurry. Instead, he's patient with us. Consider the source of that emotional surge or that flash of anger that you feel. We need to ask ourselves this question, am I seeking to win a soul or am I seeking to simply win an argument? Being right or winning an argument does not in itself win souls to the kingdom. It doesn't. Do not exalt yourself, being elevated on the rightness of your moral stance, Remember that Jesus did not elevate himself. He descended to win souls. We should also descend to win souls. We should descend to our knees. Take 24 hours and pray for that person. Hey, add some kerosene to it and fast. Skip a meal in that 24 hours. The world will not end in that amount of time. So many things that are done in haste are regretted later on. Fasting and prayer, listen, fasting and prayer will do so much more damage to the kingdom of darkness than any social media post will. Sorry, just... Amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Glory, glory. Thank you, Caroline. Yes. So, this is really helpful. How do we relate to those who don't pretend to be followers of Jesus, are not part of the kingdom of God? What Caroline said really helps us. Grief, mercy, prayer, fasting, all of those things. Okay? But this brings up the question, who is a follower of Jesus? This is a fundamental question for this discussion, right? Did Jesus define the boundaries of the church so that we can discern? And here's a revelation that I came to you just recently. And it's from John 17. And you would think that, you know, how hard is it to find a new thing in John 17? We've been praying, teaching, reading, studying it for 20 years now. And I just saw something new. Here's what I saw. John 17, 20, Jesus has already prayed for the disciples, and then he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I've always just said, okay, he's praying for us, and then we move on to the prayer, right? Which is great. But, but this is a beautifully succinct definition of the followers of Jesus. They are the ones that Jesus prayed for. Jesus was praying for his followers. He was praying for the church, right? I don't think anybody would dispute that. Nobody would say, oh, he's praying for only a subset of the church. He's praying for his followers. Well, who are they? 
They are characterized by two qualities, faith and continuity. So, faith, believe in me, those who believe in me. Faith in Jesus. Jesus defines this as a key characteristic of his followers through the ages. Faith in Jesus. But that by itself is not where he stops. He also says, through their word, the there there refers back to his disciples who he had just prayed for. So he knew his disciples were going to propagate the message. The Greek word is logos, right? He knew the disciples were going to propagate this message. And he said, belief in me needs to be through the message that they send forth. So this, I would call continuity. Continuity with the church back to the first disciples. Does that make sense? Yes. So who's a follower of Jesus? Who makes up the church? Those with faith and continuity. Both of these components are found in the four major traditions of the church. Messianic Jews, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant. Now, each tradition may define or interpret faith a little bit differently, and also continuity a little differently. But the core faith for all is in Jesus, and the core continuity for all is to the disciples and their message. So if someone does not believe in Jesus, or that belief is radically disconnected from the logos of the disciples, we are not called to pursue unity with them because they have placed themselves outside of Jesus' prayer for unity. Jesus himself divides us. But, what about those who profess to be Christians and hold beliefs very different than my own? Like this guy. <laughs> or woman, I guess. I tried to pick something that could be either one. How do I respond to another Christian who is professing a view or acting in a way that I believe may be contrary to the gospel? Whom I suspect may not be a real Christian. Who I think may be following another gospel. That Pauline phrase is used far too often, by the way. There are two options. Option one, work towards relational unity. This is a brother or sister in the Lord. The New Testament is very clear on how we should relate to one another within the family of God. We need to communicate well with them about the differences between us. Discussion is allowed. Disagreement is allowed. It's actually expected. Working through these things is important. We've renounced hostility, so we, we're not going to be hostile, but we are able to talk about these things. Sometimes this means setting boundaries. We'll talk more about this option, option one, in future teachings in this series. I'm not going to spend hardly any time on option one, because I want to get to option two. Here's option two. Expel them. Expulsion is the preferred path of many in our current politically charged culture. Here's how it is expressed. If you voted for Trump, you're not a Christian. 
I've seen this on social media. <coughs> I've also seen this. The Democrats are a bloodthirsty demonic cult. I've seen both things on social media. You see how both are expressions of expulsion? These two people just expelled tens of millions of sincere followers of Jesus from the body of Christ, including, presumably, each other. Now, it's worth breathing a sigh of relief that this expulsion is only in the minds of these people, not in reality. Jesus is the one who gets to say who's in, ultimately, and who's out. I don't think he's scanning Twitter for advice <laughs> on the matter. Here are some more examples of the path to expulsion, just so we get an idea of what it looks like. Real Christians believe in the real presence. There's a theological statement of expulsion. You cannot believe in evolution and pretend to be a Christian. There's an example of expulsion. The COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. If you're vaccinated, you've gone to the enemy's side. Those people are following another gospel. And capitalists aren't Christians. All of these are, are variations of them I have seen in the past couple of years on social media. Yes? In agreement, everyone? The stuff you've seen? Yes. And the opposite such so small subset. Yes, exactly. It's a small subset. We've seen all the opposites of them. It's a matter of grief that these things are being expressed by the body of Christ. Now, are any of them legitimate? We've got to ask that. We've got to consider seriously this question, because each person who put something like that believes <coughs> in a legitimate truth. More generally, how do we know when expulsion is appropriate? This is a question of authority and must be approached soberly. Did you say authority earlier, Tom? Very wise. In the end, we know that Jesus is the one, as I said earlier, who determined who is and who is not a part of his body. But Jesus has given gifts to men and women, appointing some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers. And these roles come with the responsibility of sharing in Christ's authority to protect the flock from false unity and dangerous teaching. By the grace of God, we have a very clear New Testament model that we can learn from on this question of authority and expulsion. And it happens to be the most critical expulsion question ever faced in the body of Christ. Much deeper and more profound and more far-reaching than the ones we've grown up there. It's one that affects us here at Christ the Reconciler this very day. Acts 15.1 Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. 
So this is a question of false and true unity. The men from Judea are Messianic Jews, Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They have a reasonable and sincere question. Can we have unity with Gentiles if they don't follow Torah, if they don't follow the law of Moses? They have concluded from their study of Scripture, and it's not an unreasonable conclusion, that no, such unity would be false unity. They are ready to expel the Gentiles who refuse to be circumcised. Do you see that? Okay. What happens next? This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Ha ha! Paul is on the scene. He'll settle the question, right? Right? He's got opinions on this matter. Before I answer that question, Paul! <laughs> I would like to point out one thing. Paul is a Messianic Jew, not a Gentile. Paul follows Torah. Paul expects Jewish followers of Jesus to follow Torah. For this reason, you might think Paul would align himself with the men from Judea fellow Jews who also follow Torah, who are essentially saying, hey, these Gentiles need to be like us, Paul, if they are to be acceptable to God. But Paul disputes that. He is actually defending the liberty of believers to not be like him. I often hear Paul put forward as a model for resisting false unity. But in my experience, those who do that are almost always saying that true unity is for other believers to become like them in some way. In who they vote for, or in believing this or that doctrine, or in their language or behavior or so on, in many different ways. In this way, they're actually more like the men from Judea than like Paul. The men from Judea are saying, in order to have true unity, you have to be circumcised like we are. Paul's argument is no. You have liberty to follow Jesus without being like me. Now, let me bring back, get back to whether or not Paul will settle this question. And of course, our expectation is he'll bring down the hammer. And the answer is, surprisingly, no. What? But he's Paul. He's always calling people out always battling different Gospels, always issuing harsh, shiny judgments. True. But only in the churches where he has the spiritual authority to do this. Critical. The churches he founded, he'll say these things and write these things. The churches who write him, asking him to weigh in on a question. He'll say these things and write these things. But Paul did not found the church in Antioch, where this dispute is taking place. And, surprisingly, perhaps, he's not even one of the elders of the church. He does not have the spiritual authority. You see this clearly in the next verse. So, Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers, 
to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. See that? Paul is appointed and sent <coughs> by others, not by himself. This gives us an important clue to the source of spiritual authority. How do you get spiritual authority? Spiritual authority is always given, never taken. Jesus clearly stated this, and we're going to go through several kind of scriptures, both in the Gospels and in the New Testament, to see this, because this is a critical point. So much of what people consider to be their authority to speak out on things is self-appointed. I'm smart. I've got a PhD. I understand the scripture better than anyone else. I read the right news sources. So I have the right to say what I say. Is this true spiritual authority? If it's self-appointed, it is not. All right, Luke 12, 13 through 14. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide an inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, whether or not that's a rhetorical question Jesus is asking, which is an interesting debate. It's clear that Jesus <coughs> understands and expresses that judges and arbitrators are not self-appointed. Okay, that's one scripture. After the cross and resurrection, famous verse, Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus did not assign himself authority. Jesus' authority was given by the Father. Now, for those in the room who are good Protestants, good Americans, and are doubting the need for Jesus, or by extension, ourselves, to look to someone else to grant authority, let's look at Hebrews 5. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And no one takes this honor on himself. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of being a high priest. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot we can talk about in that passage. Focus here is on the fact that Jesus was appointed. He was given this. He didn't take it upon himself. It was given to him, right? Now, we have to ask ourselves, are we greater than the Messiah? The Son of God. Are we able to appoint ourselves to be the judges of the body of Christ? Jesus proved his authority through suffering. When we are full of pride and assume spiritual authority that we have not been given, we do not have the mind of Christ. This is another phrase that I hear others use to justify harsh judgments in the body of Christ. 
I can judge all things because I have the mind of Christ. Let's see how Paul defined the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Do you want the mind of Christ? Make yourself of no reputation. All right. Returning to Acts 15, Paul knows he has not been given the spiritual authority in Antioch to render a judgment on this question brought by the men from Judea. <coughs> there are two ways in which Paul doesn't have the spiritual authority to judge. Number one, first, he doesn't have it in his home church. He didn't send himself. He was sent by the elders and leaders of the church. So, in the church in Antioch, Paul does not have this spiritual authority, number one. Number two, this is critical, his home church, Antioch, does not have the authority to judge members of another church, the church in Jerusalem, remember? The Judeans came from the church in Jerusalem, which was the central church of the body of Christ in these early days, out to Antioch, and so saying, hey, we can't decide this matter. We're going to go to Jerusalem and have it be decided. So this is very, very important. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Do you have the spiritual authority to judge all Catholics? All Democrats? All capitalists? To exclude them from the body of Christ? No, you do not. You only have the spiritual authority that has been given you by another. Americans in particular don't like this. Well, what is Paul's response in Acts 15? He has been disputing the Judeans. Now does he elevate himself to render a judgment on them? No, he doesn't. He doesn't try to seize authority. He doesn't grasp it. He doesn't appoint himself as the arbiter. He submits to the spiritual authority that he knows is over him. Now, the pastors and elders of his church give Paul some authority, but as with all spiritual authority in the church, it is not unlimited. There's a definite task he's been appointed for, to travel to Jerusalem and represent the church at, at Antioch. There are apostles and elders of the church in Jerusalem, where the men of Judea came from, who will be the ones that render the judgment. So let's look again at verse 2. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed. We can learn a lot from this one verse. It's so simple, but so powerful. And we can learn it from Jesus, too. They were appointed to go to Jerusalem. So true authority is given, always given, never taken. Number one. Number two, to go to Jerusalem. They were appointed to do something specific. True spiritual authority is always limited, never unlimited. You may be appointed the pastor of a church, or an elder, or a bishop, or even the pope. The authority isn't unlimited. It's limited to what you've been set aside for. Now, of course, Jesus has all authority. So Jesus' authority is unlimited. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Tracking with me? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Now, it is the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, led by James, the brother of Jesus, who do have the spiritual authority to judge on this question. 
Their spiritual authority is an authority. Get this. The authority is what? The authority is to protect the unity of the body of Christ. And here we are, 2,000 years later, in Albion, Texas, at Christ the Reconciler, worshiping Jesus as a result of their decision that Gentiles do not have to follow Torah in order to be part of the people of God. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for those elders at Jerusalem, led by James, who made this decision. We'll look at the judgment they render in a minute, but first let's seal up this question of spiritual authority. After the council renders this judgment, James, the leader of the church, writes a letter back to Antioch with the decision, and notice what he says. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. The Judeans who started this were without authorization. It's worth pondering this sentence. How many of us today in this room have gone out without authorization, without spiritual authority, and disturbed and troubled others in the body of Christ? Have I? I certainly have. Have you? Alright. For those of us who are concerned about false unity, and I am one of them, let's not be like the men from Judea. They assumed an authority they weren't given and attempted to expel those not like them from the body of Christ, bringing unnecessary disturbance and trouble to the body of Christ and hindering the spread of the gospel. Maybe up to now we've been more like the men of Judea. Let's, let's change. Let's say let's not be like that anymore. From now on, let's be like Paul. But if we're going to be like Paul, let's be like the real Paul. Not like the Paul of our imagination, who freely and gleefully combats false gospels anywhere and everywhere and demands that other members of the body of Christ conform to his way of thinking and acting. The real Paul is not like that. The real Paul defends the liberty of others in the body of Christ to be not like him. The real Paul does not render judgment unless he has been given the spiritual authority to do so. And then he explains afterwards how sad it made him to have to write these hard words to you. Right? He's not gleeful about it at all. He's always apologetic and mournful. The real Paul trusts and submits to those whose authority he knew to be established by Jesus himself. See Galatians 2.2, 2, where after, I think, 15 years, Paul submits the gospel he's preaching to the church in Jerusalem and says, is this a true gospel? He submits it and waits for their judgment to be rendered. He trusts them even when he takes issue with their choices later on in Galatians 2, as he did with Peter. Paul never questions Peter's authority, but Paul did challenge Peter for backing away from eating with Gentiles. Recognizing authority does not mean we cannot speak to 
or dialogue with those who are in authority. Now, the question of do I have the spiritual authority is only the first step in the process of expulsion. Of course, if only this one step were followed, the body of Christ would be a completely different place than it is today. Here was my response when the meme I showed you earlier was posted. I had a put a response to it, which is pretty much what Philip said. Be more like Christ. He did this, and he had the spiritual authority to do so, unlike at least 99.9% .9 of us who think we should do the same. So, before you expel someone from the body of Christ in your own mind, you have to ask yourself this question. Have I been given the spiritual authority to cast this person or group out of the body of Christ? But let's say you've considered carefully and believe you do have the spiritual authority to determine whether or not the person or group that you disagree with is a real Christian. You may be a pastor or a priest appointed to shepherd and protect a body of believers. Well, first of all, hopefully you are not glorifying in your position and enjoying being right. If you are, that's a warning sign. Leaders who aren't up at night wrestling with the implications of their authority probably don't really have any. But, once again, assuming you do, what factors should go into your decision of whether or not to expel someone you disagree with? Once again, the account of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 really helps us. So when the council convenes, the Judaizers, along with Peter and Paul, and Peter's already there, Paul and Barnabas, have traveled in from Antioch. Peter's there. This is a significant meeting. There's really nothing else like this recorded in the New Testament. Here's the case Peter makes to the council. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence and work with the, in those, with those, in the lives of those with whom we take issue? You may be very focused on what a group says, their theology, or their political slogans. But Peter and Paul are looking at very different types of evidence. Has God accepted and purified them? Do they have the Holy Spirit? Can you see the gifts, fruits, and signs of the Holy Spirit in their life? Peter's testimony in particular is rooted in Acts 10 through 11. If you remember, a really crazy series of spirit-directed events led Peter to conclude that God was accepting the Gentiles and allowing them to become Jesus' followers. So when he came back from his meeting with the, uh, what was it, the centurion? Uh, with the vision of the... Cornelius. Cornelius, thank you. When he came back from that, he was challenged on it by the church leaders. Here was his response. Notice how similarly, similar it is to his testimony I had just shown. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them 
as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when the leaders heard these words, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Paul later writes in Romans 8.14, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So bringing home these things to our hypothetical situation, before you decide anyone is not a real Christian, you have to carefully consider, is there evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence and work in their life? What might this consist of? Do they demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit? Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, and on. Okay? Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Are they operating in one or more gifts of the Spirit? Of course, you think of speaking in tongues and prophecy, but also things like service and administration for the sake of the body of Christ. These are gifts of the Spirit. Does their life show first forth the services or activities or effects or energies of the Spirit? I don't know if any of y'all remember that brilliant teaching Amy gave from 1 Corinthians 12 about three years ago, but she talked about this very powerfully, worth going back and listening to. Now, it's worth noting that looking for this type of evidence requires that we actually know the person or the group, right? You can't just follow this biblical model and write off someone you met on the internet who may or may not be who they say they are, and actually may or may not be a real person. Right, Jim? Yes, <laughs> In order to make this type of judgment, you have to have a real relationship. Here's another important consideration regarding the Holy Spirit. We learned from Father Peter Hawken about the three sayings of the Holy Spirit that are recorded in the New Testament. These also are signs of the presence of the Spirit. What are these three sayings? Number one, Jesus is Lord. This is submission to the Lordship of Christ. A good test of this in our own lives is to take a doctrine or a political issue, something we feel very strongly about, and ask, if Jesus were to appear to me and tell me I were wrong, would I change my opinion? Abba, Father, this is joy in the delightful love of God. A good test of this is to ask ourselves, do I know deep down in the inmost part of my heart that God likes me and enjoys me just as I am right now? Abba, Daddy, God. Third, second saying of the Holy Spirit. The third one is, come, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. This is a longing for Jesus to return. And a good test of this is to ask yourself, if I were to make a list of the top three things I desire most in life, would Jesus' second coming be on that list? Right, Sandy? Amen, huh? Now these tests above that I talked about, we, I kind of talked about them being directed to ourselves, we can also look for evidence of assent to one or more of these truths in others. 
Do we see one of these three, or two, or all three, in the person we're itching to exclude? Are they submitted to the Lordship of Christ in some area of their life? Do they enjoy God's love for them? Is there a longing, or a yearning for the return of Christ? Well, if so, they seem to be aligned with what the Spirit is saying. Well, you might respond, they seem to enjoy God's love, but they aren't submitted to Christ's lordship at all in this one area. <laughs> this, then, is important evidence that they do have the Holy Spirit in some measure. Praying for greater revelation, engaging in dialogue, challenging in brotherly love, when invited, these are all appropriate responses to perceived gaps in faith that we seem to see in our brothers and sisters. We must remember that none of us demonstrate all the fruit of the Holy Spirit all the time. Who among us operates in all the gifts and powerfully? Thank God we don't, right? We're a body. Some have some gifts, some have another. What we're looking for is evidence of some of these and our bias must be to find them, not to discount them. Why do I say this? this? This part makes me scared. Because we don't want to commit the one sin that Jesus describes as unforgivable. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said about Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. The scribes are trying to impugn Jesus to prevent people from following him. In fairness, they are afraid Jesus is a false messiah and they want to prevent their fellow Jews from falling into deception. Therefore, they discount his miracles as coming not from the Holy Spirit but from demons. And Jesus is having none of it. Jesus defends the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting peek into the unity of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is being accused. Jesus defends the Holy Spirit. Should we not tremble at the prospect of committing a sin that Jesus describes as unforgivable? Let's look again at this quotation. The writer is saying that every Democrat in America is possessed by Beelzebub. Is there no evidence of the fruit, gifts, workings, or sayings of the Holy Spirit in, for example, the 96% of the black church in America who voted for Hillary Clinton? Have you ever been to a black church? I guarantee you that the Holy Spirit is alive and well in our African-American brothers and sisters. 
And if we see any evidence of the Holy Spirit and the prospect of committing this sin that Jesus calls unforgivable should cause us to err way on the side of finding this evidence. If we see this evidence, how can we, in our hearts, cast them out of the body of Christ? Do we consider ourselves so much better than them? As Paul writes in Romans 15, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. This matches exactly Peter's language before the Jerusalem Council. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by what? Giving the Holy Spirit to them. Okay, so far then, we have to make these two considerations before we write some person or group off as not Christian. Number one, have I been given the spiritual authority to cast this person or group out of the body of Christ? And if so, am I willing, is this so important, I'm willing to risk the unforgivable sin by asserting that there's no presence of the worth or life of the Holy Spirit in them and thus they have not been accepted by God. Now, is there anything else? This is quite enough, right? But let's not stop here. Yes, there's one more thing. The final consideration is this. Is the issue worth the risk of hindering world evangelization? Where do we find this in Acts 15? Listen carefully to James's ruling. When they had finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So the gospel is exploding among the Gentiles. And they're turning to Christ and joining the church. James takes this into consideration in making his decision. If he rules that the Gentile Christians are excommunicated until they convert to Judaism and then they're brought back in, the effect will be to quench a burgeoning movement. Sure, some Gentiles will accept, uh, submit to circumcision, to Torah, to dietary laws, but how many? This would be a huge obstacle to the spread of the gospel through the world. And this exactly matches the link that is in Jesus' mind between unity and evangelism. So that they may be brought to complete unity, his prayer for us, or then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So in James's mind, he's got this link also. There's a link between the unity of the body of Christ and the, the propagation of the gospel, the evangelism of the world. So James in Acts 15 is exactly aligned with Jesus' prayer for us. We should not make it difficult for people to turn to God. And this, plus the fact that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles, together this wins the day in Acts 15. And under the leadership of James, the council makes a remarkable ruling. This would be pretty much unexpected that this is what they would come to. Here's Johannes Wittenbauer's description. Johannes Lichtenbauer is the Archdeacon of Vienna, works very much with the Messianic Jews around the world, and he wrote a book recently called The Mystery of the Olive Tree about the Messianic Jewish movement. Really good book, recommended, 
and he talks a little bit about this decision from the council. Here's what he says. James understood that it would be these Gentiles who would ultimately bring the good news into the cultures of the nations at the far ends of the earth. James's proposal, what to do, had only four criteria to be followed by the Gentiles. To abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Seems like an odd list, right? But Johannes really helps us here. Without fulfilling these four requirements, Jew and Gentile believers could never be part of the same congregation. Or, among other things, partake of the Lord's Supper together. That's a beautiful insight. These are the things that are necessary in order for the Gentiles and Jews to go to church together. So, this is what we're going to require of the Gentile believers. But nothing more. Yeah. Aren't you glad? That was a very mellow response. <laughs> Let me repeat that. Are, are not you, Gentiles in this room, glad that James did not exclude you from the body of Christ unless you became a Jew and followed Torah? Yes. Are you yes. glad? Yes. Hallelujah. But note also the apostles of Jerusalem don't say to the church in Antioch, go and do whatever's right in your own eyes. They do lay requirements on the church, which they consider clearly to be under their authority in order to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. Apostolic authority was given by Jesus to protect the body of Christ. James and the other apostles are exercising appropriately that authority, laying down body boundaries to prevent the body of Christ from splintering. And this will be our topic for the next teaching in this series. So Amy will talk about this on November 12th. She's going to consider the proper use of apostolic authority and the, necessi the necessity of obedience in the, in the pursuit of unity. All right, summary. To summarize this teaching, we began with the concept of true and false unity. True unity is the unity of the Trinity. That's the definition of true unity. It is a relational unity. Very important. A relational unity that should be sought by all members of the body of Christ, regardless of their differences in beliefs, secondary beliefs, politics, social status, and so forth. And we will talk more about how to do this in subsequent teachings. So after the apostolic teaching, we're going to talk about how do we relate to one another in the body of Christ in a healthy way? False unity is the attempt to form unity between followers of Jesus and those who do not follow Jesus. How do we know? Jesus gives us two characteristics. Faith in him and continuity with the message of the first disciples. If we encounter someone who has faith in Jesus in continuity with the apostolic logos, and we want to declare them to be not a true Christian or not faithful to the gospel, we cannot do this thoughtlessly. Here are the three considerations that we learn should be in our minds as our fingers hover over that post button. Have I been given spiritual authority? Am I willing to risk committing this terrible sin 
by saying there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives? And am I assured that labeling them not real Christians won't make it more difficult for others to turn to God? Brothers and sisters, these are high bars. Our hearts should be sober as we consider them. We're going to pause here in prayer, asking the Spirit to speak to us and work in us before moving on to small groups. So, Greg, whenever you're ready, just come up and be And Father, I just want to thank you for your great love that you have accepted us, that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that you've placed us in a body with brothers and sisters who are not like us, who are beautifully different in many ways. And you've given us guidelines for how to relate to one another. And you've placed authority in this body so that not everyone is a judge in his own eyes. Thank you, Father. Thank you.